0: You're listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10:30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Good morning. Great to see you all. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to uh, the book of Galatians in the New Testament. We're going to look at chapter 3. We looked at the first half of chapter 3 last week, and we're going to get the second half this week. Galatians chapter 3, and let me just, again, give you some background, uh, catch us up a little bit, just in case you've missed, or just probably get a refresh. Every now and then. But the book of Galatians was the first book probably written in the New Testament. It was written about 13 to 15 years after Christ's death and resurrection. It was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to people that lived in a region in uh, Southeast Asia Minor called Galatia. And what had happened, Paul had come in there with his team. Uh, They had preached the gospel to these people that were pagans. They had become Christians and they spent some time there getting the church founded and grounded and then Paul and his team left to go somewhere else and behind Paul and and his team came a group of people that were known and they've been called this called the Judaizers and what these men did is they came in and they basically taught that Jesus was the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament but that to be one of God's people you had to keep the law and you had to Keep the rituals and you had to keep the ceremonies and you had to maintain the festivals to keep in harmony with God. And so what Paul does in this letter is writes and clarifies what it means that who the people of God are and how one becomes part of God's family. And he he really does a great job of illustrating the distinction between the, a covenant of law. And the covenant of grace. And he, he distinguishes what grace is like. And that's a, this is a really important book for us. Because we, we all sing, grace is amazing, right? But grace is also awkward. It's just very counterintuitive to Christians, counterintuitive to humanity. It's just not what we naturally go to. I remember um, about 10 years ago, I got this new, then new, instrument called an iPhone. And I remember I was so excited about it because I thought this is going to be, I've heard about it, everything on a phone, all this. And I remember I actually went and bought one and got one after church on a Sunday. We just started the churches. I think our first or second year, we we're meeting at Alex Road. I remember going to the store and buying it and getting it and then suddenly having to learn how to push these buttons and how to make a, you know, a, a, the, the, type, the uh, keyboard come up. And, and it was just extremely awkward. You know, you just sort of, you just, well, you know, you just do that. And yeah, it was just really, really for a while. Maybe you had a similar experience if you have a smartphone. Just is kind of awkward to to work with. It takes a while, but it's really superior once you get used to it. And this is kind of how grace is for you and I, for human beings. It's it's just kind of awkward. I mean, to really believe that our salvation is completely God's work. That He does everything. That it is all up to Him. That the burden for your salvation and my salvation is completely on Him. It's just kind of awkward. It's kind of hard to get used to. You know, Titus, with the inspiration we read this morning, Titus 3, and those two verses, verse 6 and 7, really say, He saved us. He saved us. Those are three powerful words. He saved us, not because of anything we've done, not anything. And Paul repeats those three words. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit so that we might be heirs of the hope of eternal life. He saved us. He does all the work. It is All of God. It is grace, grace. God is the one who produces our salvation. And as we are reading this and understanding this, there's two key words we've looked at. And I just want to refresh our minds of what they mean. Uh, One key word is a word called righteousness. And another key word is a word called justification. They're very similar words. Righteousness means to be in a contract where you have a contract with somebody, an agreement with somebody. And righteous means you have fulfilled every obligation of that contract. You, as far as you're concerned, it is completely fulfilled. You have done your part to the complete degree. You cannot improve upon what you've done to fulfill that contract. You can't fulfill it any more than it's been fulfilled. That is to be Righteous justification is the process of becoming righteous. If you haven't fulfilled the contract, you still need to do this and do this and do that. Justification would be doing all those things to become right or righteous with that contract or with that agreement. One way that we might want to understand this and illustrate this is, is something called the Hope Scholarship. Uh, The Miller Scholarship. Many of our students know about that. Some of us that attended Georgia. I actually went to Georgia before that was around. But uh, the the Miller Scholarship, I know you have to have a 3.7. Keep up on that thing, huh? 3.7 GPA. And if you do that, the University of Georgia pays for your tuition and I think your books. It's not as good as it used to be. It's too bad, but they, but, but they, but they pay for a lot of it. And you, if you have a 3.7 GPA, if that's what you have, you are right with that scholarship. That award is yours as long as you have that standard. Now, what happens if you go below? I think it's a 3.0 while you're in college. You lose the hope. And so, to get it back, you have to wait a year, and you have to get your GPA back up to a certain level. That would be justification. Right with the covenant, right with the award means you meet the standards, you meet the requirements. Justification would be if you dip below the process of getting back restored to where that is. Is that clear to everybody's mind? Okay. Those are two two, two key words that are are in this. And these, these words are used intermittently. And so what Paul does in this In this book. Is talk about these words. He talks about what it means to be in covenant with God. And he gets us to understand grace. And understand what it's all about. And last week what Paul did. He's going to finish his thought this week. He talked about a guy named Abraham. Who is the figurehead. The ethnic figurehead. Of the whole Jewish people. And he talks about what it meant. To be in his relationship with God. and be in relationship with Abraham. And Paul made the point that the way Abraham was connected to God, the way Abraham was made right with God is through what he believed. Not through any other thing. It was what he believed. And it kind of makes the point that to really be one of Abraham's offspring and one of Abraham's people and be part of that chosen group, it is about believing. Not, it's not your ethnic birth, but it's more about doing what Abraham did. Believing and trusting in that and the way faith worked for Abraham is Abraham believed in something God would do God told him in the future there was an off there was one of his offspring was coming who would bring salvation to the whole world and Abraham believed in what God would do in the future and the Bible says God made him right that's all he had to do it made him right with the covenant that's all he did and for you and I, the difference is we believe in what Christ has done in the past. And in doing that, we become right with the covenant. So this is kind of where Paul's at. And he gets into this thing in Galatians uh, chapter 3. And let's start with verse 15. I'm going to read the end of the chapter for us. And he's going to continue this, this train of thought. He goes in verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant... ...that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say to seeds meaning many people, but to your seed meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God... ...and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law and it no longer depends on the promise... But God gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now what's he talking about there? What what does he mean by all that? What, what, What Abraham is doing is going back to the Old Testament and he's sharing with these guys a couple of events that happened. One is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. It's the covenant God made with Abraham. And you can read about this in Genesis chapter 15. He quoted from that earlier in this chapter. Genesis chapter 15. And what happened? God told Abraham, you look, all the stars in the sky, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Somebody is coming from you. One of your offspring from your family is going to bless the whole world. Salvation to this world is coming through somebody that's going to be one of your lineage. And Abraham, the Bible says, believed it. He was reckoned righteous. But then he asked God, he goes, look, how can this be? How's this going to happen? I mean, I'm an old man. My wife's too old to have a kid. How is this going to happen? How can I be certain that you're going to do what you're going to do? You ever want to be certain? It's a powerful thing to be certain. And Abraham wants to be certain. I want to be clear. And so something happens, God tells him to make this covenant. And what he does, he goes out and they, they... Part of it, this is an ancient Near Eastern covenant ceremony, very common in those days. Two parties would make this kind of agreement. They would get some animals and they would cut them in half and they would part them. And Abraham did this, a couple bulls, a couple goats, some pigeons, and he he cuts these animals in half and he parts them. And again, I'm not really too graphic here, but but the innards and the blood and all that's within those carcasses just pours out and it makes this bloody kind of a gruesome path. This was common in the ancient Near East. This is how they made covenant agreements. And what would happen is each party would get on either side of that thing and they would make an agreement. I will do this and you will do this. And they would make an agreement and then they would walk between this bloody path with each other. They would lock arms and they would walk between. And they were basically saying, may this curse happen to me if I break this covenant. May I be like these animals. And they would, they would do this thing. And, and in this agreement, it was really powerful. And you see, it was with a greater and a lesser. The suzerain was called the greater. The vassal was called the lesser And it was interesting because if the suzerain, if the greater ever asked the vassal, the lesser to do something, the suzerain was obligated to do the same thing for him. If he asked a favor, if the leader asked a favor of the lesser, the leader also was obligated, if necessary, to do the same favor for him. And so they're walking between these paths. They're, making this, they're going to make this covenant. And Abraham sets up this thing. He cuts open these animals. He gets it ready. And he's waiting on God to come. And he falls asleep. He falls sound asleep over here to the side. And while he's sleeping, God comes down. And he comes down as a torch and as a smoking pot. And God walks between these two pieces. That's just a really odd story. God walks between them. But what was happening there is something really amazing. God is not is saying, it's not God and Abraham saying, I will bear the curses if I break it, but God is saying, I will bear the curses if I break this covenant. But I will also bear the curses if you break this covenant. So Abraham's resting. It's a covenant of grace. He contributes nothing. He risks nothing. God risks everything to have this covenant with Abraham. Cuz he's not only going to bear curses if he violates it, but if Abraham violates it, he's going to break these curses. And something really significant happened several years later in this covenant. God asked Abraham, he's the vassal, he's the leader, and he asked the lesser to do something. It's pretty extraordinary. He asked him to sacrifice his only son. Remember that? Take Isaac up, and he takes him up this mountain. And and I and Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son for the sake of the covenant. Now, because the leader asked the lesser to do that, what does that mean has to happen? If necessary, the leader has to be willing to sacrifice his own son for the sake of the covenant. Now, in light of what happened 2,000 years later through Christ, that is a remarkable event. And that is the Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant of grace. It is a covenant where God puts the burden of, of all the requirements of the covenant on himself. Not just his requirements, but he puts the burden of humanity's requirements On himself. And he says if humanity. If human beings. If Abraham and his descendants. Break this covenant with me. They won't bear the curse of it. I'll bear the curse myself. And I will do it particularly. Through sacrificing my own son. And this is why Paul says in there. God preached. The gospel to Abraham. Before Christ came. It's a powerful profound picture of the gospel almost 2,000 years before Jesus came. And so Paul is talking about this covenant with Abraham. It's a covenant of grace. Again, a covenant where God bears the burden for salvation completely and totally himself. Abraham is resting. He's sleeping. He contributes nothing to it. And so 430 years later, Another covenant happens, and this is with Moses and with Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel. And we know the story of the Exodus. And this is actually in Exodus chapter 20 when they get the Ten Commandments given down to them. And then there's some things about how they're going to set up their worship and their tabernacle and and all this stuff. And then in Exodus 24, they ratify this covenant that Paul's talking about. It's with Moses. And what they do is they there's a blood sacrifice. And in verse 24, chapter 24, verse 3, Moses asked the people, Do you really want to be in covenant with God through the law? And they say, and they say, Yes, and they, they make they say these things. We will do everything in it. We will do. We will do. And then again, in verse 7, Moses asked him again. And they again respond, we will do. Then in verse 8, the covenant's ratified with the sprinkling of blood. And the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, enters into a covenant that was at that time new with God. This covenant based on the law. And where in the Abrahamic covenant, God said, I will do everything. In this covenant, the people say, we will do we will do. We will do our part. And so Moses is contrasting these two covenants. And he's, he's, that's what he's doing in this passage. And what he says about them is this. This covenant with Moses, he's going to explain this, is a temporary covenant. The covenant with Abraham is the one that was going to be brought in to existence through Christ. And he said this covenant of law Was to exist until the law was fulfilled through the death of Christ. And now we're into a new covenant. So then he come to verse 19. And if you you look at this, and let me just make sure this is kind of interesting. So you have two covenants, right? You have a covenant of grace and you have a covenant uh, of the law. The covenant of law began, like we said, in the exodus. And it existed. Does anybody know when the covenant of law actually officially ended? It ended in a date, 70 A.D. What happened in 70 A.D.? The Romans came in and they invaded Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple and there could no longer be any sacrifices. There hasn't been a sacrifice since. The rituals and the ceremonies of the Old Covenant ended in 70 A.D. When did this New Covenant begin? With what? The death of Jesus in 33. And so you have the New Covenant beginning in 33, In 70 A.D., about less than 40 years later, you have the Old Covenant ending. That period of time is called, does anybody know what that's called? It's called the last days. A lot of times we think the last days is talking about the end of history. I hate to burst your bubble. Please don't be mad at me. It's just not true. Even if you're mad at me, it's still not true. It just is not talking about that. That word mentioned... Three times the New Testament is always talking to to Jewish audience about the significance of the the new covenant coming about. That's what that means. It's just this one generation, about a 40 year period. It's called the last days, the new covenant is going and the old covenant hasn't completely ended yet. Anyways, I thought you might want to know that. Uh, I don't want to share that actually, but I thought you might want to know it. Anyways, uh, let's look at verse 19. Keep reading here. Paul has a question that we ought to ask. Okay, so we had this. We had this covenant of grace and then we had this covenant of law. Why did we do that? Verse 19 Why did the law was given at all? Why was the law given? Why do we have the law? Why do we have this kind of period in, in redemptive history where there's a law and Israel's under this burden to try to keep these rules and keep these standards and it's such a frustrating time? Why do we have that? And he tells you here it was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party. But God is one. Is the law opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteous would have certainly come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Christ, might be given to all who believe. Why was the law given? And basically, let me, let me illustrate this, and I hope this doesn't bother anybody, but I have up here a cigarette. Now, I don't smoke cigarettes, so don't get worried here. But this is something that years ago, and I remember this as a kid. I remember when the Surgeon General came out and said, cigarettes are bad for you. We didn't know that for sure then. Maybe we should've got the clue, but we really didn't know that. Now, when that came out, I remember watching a show called The Andy Griffith Show. Everybody remember The Andy Griffith Show? Somebody did? Like it's the most wholesome show in the history of America. I mean, it really probably is. And, Andy Griffith was the star. He was a sheriff in a small town. And during the show, Andy would be talking and he would be smoking a cigarette. Because we just didn't know it was wrong. We didn't know it was bad. We didn't know. We didn't know it was bad. We didn't know it hurt you. We didn't know. Now, just because we didn't know didn't mean it didn't hurt you. You just were doing something bad and harmful, unaware. You know, if the Surgeon General comes out, let's say that Molly Harwell is the Surgeon General here. And Molly Harwell just says, Pastor Lee, this is bad for you. Now, what does it do? I'm suddenly, I'm, I enjoyed cigarettes. Now what happens? I can't, I've got to really try to Stop. There's a law, there's a rule, it's bad for you. And I'm like, oh gosh, okay. So it, it was always bad for me, but now I know. And it intensifies how bad it is, doesn't it? Now let's say on top of the Surgeon General of the United States, Molly Harwell, do it. what if my wife then says, those are nasty, they're terrible, uh, don't get near me. So here's what I thought Not only is it wrong and bad and harmful and something I shouldn't do, it, it, it's, it is hindering a relationship that is the most important relationship in the world to me. It's affecting this relationship. And so that's bad. It makes it even worse. Now, what if is Lee Davis here? He's not here. Somebody on our board... John Roberts, raise your hand. Now, what if John Roberts and the board of our church get together and say, Lee, this stuff is terrible, and we can't have a pastor smoking, so if you don't stop, we're going to fire you. And I'm going to not have a job. And I like my job. Think about this. It, it, it goes from just being, okay, I'm doing something wrong, to this is severing a relationship, to there's a real punitive consequence. And this is what the law did. It took something that was bad for humanity, but they were just oblivious. They were just being natural, normal humans. It suddenly said, you've got to stop doing this because it's bad for you. And then it said, hey, you know what? And there's a relationship you have with God that's being marred by this stuff. And then there's a punitive effect. There's a judgment that's going to come on us for rebelling against him. Suddenly, can you see how naively smoking a cigarette suddenly changes for somebody? How the law changes it? Paul put it this way. The law made sin utterly sinful. It made it really bad. And here's what the law was was hoping to do. Number one, it was hoping to restrain sin. Obviously, when you find out something's bad for you, It's going to affect a crucial relationship to you, and it's going to be punitive. You'll stop doing it, or you will at least try. It restrains sin. It also reveals sin. It helps us think through why we do what we do and really understand right and wrong better. But something else it does and it reveals is what we're really like and how broken we really are because, you see, the truth is With so many sins in our life, no matter how sensible, no matter how devastating, no matter how wrong, no matter what it may cost us, our health, relationships, other serious consequences, we can't stop. And it makes us face something about ourselves. The law does. As human beings, we are more sensual than sensible. We are more committed to sin in ourselves than to integrity in our own personal well-being even. And this is why God gave the law. It was so you and I could see what we're really like and see our deep, deep need for grace. Something is wrong with us. It's not just what we do. It's what we are. And what we do that's wrong is because what we are is wrong. This is why he says in that verse, it's verse 21, if a law was given that can impart life, it'd be great. A law can tell you what right and wrong is. It can tell you what to do. It cannot help you do it at all. The law is like a road map. It can tell you how to get from here to there. It is not a vehicle. It cannot transport you from here to there. And what we as humans need, and salvation for us, is a vehicle that will get us from here to there. A vehicle that can help me overcome my sin. And a vehicle that can deal not only with what I do, but who I am. And that's what the grace of Christ is. The vehicle to actually transform us. And This is what he gets into in the, the last part of this chapter. Let's read the last few verses here. Verse 23 says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith would come to be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So I want you to notice this in this lecture. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free nor is there male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you belong to Christ you are Abraham's seed you are heirs according to the promise listen here's what, he, here's what he does he takes this paradigm of a ethnic people chosen by God the Jewish people and they were ethnically relationally Uh, Connected to Abraham. And what they understood by that is this. They were in Abraham. My wife is Jewish. Uh, She is from that fabulous race. That what this means is I could trace Lisa Goldman back. I would find out she came from a Fred Goldman who came from a, you know, you could trace them back and trace them back and trace them back. Eventually what we found out is that Lisa Goldman once was in Abraham. That's how they understood that. She was in Abraham. When God made that promise to Abraham, in a sense, he was making it to Lisa. That's how they would understand it because she was in Abraham. Now, Paul is taking that paradigm and saying, I want you to understand yourselves that way but differently. Just as an ethnic Jew would understand themselves as being In Abraham, I want you to understand yourself as a spiritually reborn follower of Christ to being in Christ. That means this you came from somebody, you came from somebody, but you can trace who you are internally, your spiritual makeup, your spiritual stuff, not your natural ethnicity, but your spiritual content. The spiritual quality of your life, you can trace it back to Christ. And what it basically means is what was in him is now in you. And you are a different person. And because of that, we are not getting from here to there by m we're not a map that can't move, but we really have a vehicle. And that is what he has done in our lives, who he has made us into. What he has done when we received him. And this is how Paul describes it. If you read this thing, you were born into Christ. You have been baptized into Christ. What a powerful picture. You know, the word baptized literally means to dye something. To to immerse something in a vat of dye. If I took a, a white shirt and I had a purple band of dye. And I took that shirt and dipped it and soaked it and up it. What would that church become? It would become what the dye is. If, and this is what it means to be a Christian. God takes you, your soul, your heart, and He immerses you in the vat of Christ, and He soaks you, and He puts you in, and he, and he until guess what? You absorb what He is. You become in Christ. And when He talks about this, it is so powerful. Because he says there's no longer, you know, Jew or Greek. You know, it's no longer an ethnic distinction. There's no longer such a thing as black or white or Hispanic or Asian or whatever. Those are not the, the crucial things. That's not, you're not connected to your natural ancestry. You are connected to Christ. All of us, regardless of our ethnicity, are connected to him. He says, you're not male or female. Equally, men and women are connected to Christ. You're not slave or free. You're not rich or poor. We're not halves or half nines. We are all equally connected and transformed spiritually by Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian is to have this radical, powerful transformation. That's what our culture is dying for. Our culture is so utterly confused when it comes to these issues, it's just sad. And just as our culture gets, we need to identify with Jesus. Identify with Him. That's who we are. And that's what it means to live in the grace of Christ, to be transformed by the grace of Christ, is that He makes us a new person, a new race. It's not a natural race. Our ethnicity stays the same. But who we are internally is radically different. Radically different. And that's literally what it means to be a Christian. Is to have that change. And I just want to say this just from my heart to you. And if you're here, you know, one of the things I'm just going to say, you know, a lot of times when we struggle with sin, it's because we struggle with grace. When grace is clear to us, you start to say, when you're the natural thing to think is that if I do good, if I comply, I'll receive grace. The truth is, when you receive grace, you'll naturally comply. (laughs) Paul said, when you're under grace, not under the law, sin won't be your master. It won't rule over you. Sometimes our struggles with sin are because we really struggle with grace, and maybe this change needs to happen in our lives. What do I ask him? Does that really happen to you? Can you really know for sure, I am in Christ. I have been made new. Jesus Christ has changed who I am. I'm not just a, the same on me trying to change my behavior. I am somebody new. I am somebody new. And if that's that happened to you, I would invite you to experience that change. Experience what we call a new birth, a new you. To have Christ come in and change your life. And make you new. Make you different. Make you His. For Him to take who you are and baptize it and drench it in a new dye and bring you up to be something totally different. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the power of grace not only to forgive us, cleanse us of our past, but the power of grace to make us somebody totally new. To really bring Christ into us and to connect us to him. And we thank you, Lord, that in Christ you're making a, a whole new ethnicity to transform this world. It's not a black or a white or a Hispanic or a Asian, or or whatever ethnicity. It is a reborn ethnicity. Your people in different skins, in different social standings, different genders to go and transform this world by your power and your presence within them. We pray that you'd make this miracle real to us, God. Make who we are in you real to us, Lord, and not, a, not just a something we read on a page, but something we experience within. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.